What's going on, everybody? Welcome yet again to another installment of Wise Guys Hideaway. I'm your host, as always, Ian Barr. And today, we are talking a true legend. I'm talking the fixer, the man uptown, the motherfucking big bankroll. I'm talking Arnold the Brain Rothstein, ladies and gentlemen, the pretty much the founding mind behind organized crime. Now, not the founder of organized crime, but definitely the driving force and, I mean, the bankroller. But before we get into him, we got to give a couple shout-outs and a few promos here real quick. Big shout-out to Art Thing Clothing Apparel, uh, founded by author Gunnar Lindblom, the author of To Be a King's Volume 1 and 2, and also the proprietor of a new YouTube series coming out called My Thing, which you can uh, subscribe to. Just pop on over to YouTube, type in My Thing or uh, Gunnar Lindblom from, uh, you know, ex-Detroit Mob Enforcer, and uh, it'll pop up. It's uh, it's really interesting, you guys. He just talks about all the all the things he's been through in his life. Another big shout-out goes to Scott M. Bernstein, the author of Motor City Mafia and the proprietor of the original Gangster Podcast, which uh, this podcast is a big promoter of. They're, uh, they're really great over there, man. He gets some top-level guests, and his sound engineer is, is on point. Those guys, uh, those guys know what they're doing. Gotta give quick shout-outs to all my buddies in the group. You know, Boston Rob, how you doing? Paulie G from New York, how you doing? James Ramirez, you know, my boy Andy G out there liking and sharing everything he can from Wise Guys Hideaway. I see you, Andy. Big shout-out to you. David Haley, Nikki D, you know, Wolfgang Horan, that crazy son of a bitch who uh, drops that promo at the beginning of the episode, you know. Big shout-out to all those guys as well as my friends and family that are listening. I love you guys. Thanks for all the support, and uh, we're going to get into it here. So, Arnold Rothstein is... I mean, he's he's so much different than almost anybody else I'm going to talk about. I mean, one, he's uh, just, he's, you're going to come to find, just obviously smarter. But the second part is he didn't come from most of these guys I'm going to discuss here on this podcast and, you know, down the road, the guys that I'll interview, most of them come from, you know, hardship type backgrounds. You know, their their mom and dads were blue collar people if, if their mom and dads were around at all, you know, they and they usually grew up very poor. And they, they yearned for the finer things in life. However, Rothstein grew up very comfortably. I mean, he was born January 17th, 1882 uh, in New York City to a, you know, mid to upper class Jewish family. Uh, I mean, the the truth about it is, you guys, he just was always kind of addicted, fascinated, and drawn to gambling into just like the allure of fast money. He didn't really although he was he was sharp as a tack i mean arnold rothstein from the time he could you know read and write was a whiz with numbers i mean th- i mean this guy was well, a fucking mathematician if you ask me but he didn't really have any kind of allegiance to formal education i mean like most of these guys <laughs> i mean he was he was born into a comfortable life in manhattan to his father uh abraham and his mother esther and he had an older brother named Harold who actually uh, studied to be a rabbi. And so this gained his father Abraham's praise because his father was a very uh, a very up, upright type of guy, if, if that makes any sense. Uh, a stand-up guy, but not a stand-up street guy, you know what I mean? Like, he uh, he was known in the neighborhood, but he, he was an honest fellow. He made an honest dollar, and uh, uh, his father himself, too, was actually a quite a, quite a numbers guy. But uh, the fact that his older brother Harold was studying to be a rabbi always really gained uh, the the Rothstein's praise, Abraham and Esther, and that always kind of infuriated uh, Arnold. He he was always kind of you know looking for attention or trying to figure out where where he could fit into the family, and it would uh, it would be because of this that uh, he would develop his love for gambling. 
he began gambling very, very early. I mean, he he was he was at the dice games from I I do believe preteen, and he was he was always good at it too. You guys like he was. I mean, he wasn't always good at it as you'll come to find, but as good as any gambler can be. Uh, the crime writer Leo Ketcher actually, who wrote a a, a biography, autobiography on uh, Rothstein, was describes him as like the man who really took organized crime, took these low level street hoods, educated them, polished them up and sort of turned organized crime into the powerhouse that it would become you know i mean and as i said from a very young age he he loved to gamble and he loved to gamble so much actually that in 1921 rostin was quoted uh by a reporter as saying you know i always gambled i can't remember when i didn't maybe i gambled just to show my father he couldn't tell me what to do but i don't think so i think i gambled because i loved the excitement when i gambled nothing else mattered so by 1910 uh, Arnold Rothstein has actually been offered a, a Wall Street position due to his quick wittedness and his sharpness with numbers and, and turns it down, which is just unheard of in this time period. He, that's not what he wants. He truly always aspired to be a racketeer, uh, as well as a, you know, big time gambler. So in 1910 at around 28, he moved to the Tenderloin section of Manhattan, uh, where he establishes a series of underground casinos and also a horse track at the Havre de Grasse and, uh, in Maryland. And by allegedly fixing bets and, you know, knowing when to squeeze in and knowing who to impress and making the right contacts, uh, Rothstein would turn these gambling operations just tenfold. And by the time he was 30, so, I mean, you gotta understand 1910 from the time he's 28 till, you know, 1912, 1913, when he's, you know, roughly coming into his thirties, uh, he became a millionaire. He became a self-made millionaire. Now his big claim to fame, what, what, Arnold Rothstein's probably most famously known for, uh, mafia excluded, you know, I mean, it comes up in any mafia history, you'll look up on Arnold Rothstein, but also just in regular, uh, pop culture. I mean, they even bring this concept up in the, in the movie Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner is that in 1919, Rothstein's alleged to have set up with a few, a few agents who sort of flipped several Chicago White Sox players to kind of give the world series to the Cincinnati Reds. Um, one of the several players that was bribed was obviously Shoeless Joe Jackson, which is where that whole Field of Dreams tidbit came in. But um, nonetheless, I mean, pro athletes back in the day, guys, they didn't make very much. Like, I mean, a lot of these baseball players, they would uh, they would have a legitimate job. You know, they'd work nights or they'd do what they'd do what they have to do, and like they would play ball. And if they won, then they got a little something, something. Then they got a little, you know, taste of the the glory life. It's not like today where these guys make fucking. 10, 12 million dollars a season. I mean, get the fuck out of here. These guys were actually struggling. Now, it's really unclear if Rothstein was involved or not. I believe he was, but it, I mean, it doesn't really matter what I believe. I don't write history. There's a lot of speculation from both sides, but since this is my podcast, we're going to go with Rothstein did it. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, he, he very well could have not, but I do believe he was involved in what the media would dub the Black Sox scandal. And, uh, Although he was involved, his takeaway was, I mean, it was very slim, actually, guys. It was, I mean, somebody estimated, I, I believe, do believe it was the Leo Catcher guy who wrote the book on Rothstein that estimated it was between probably only like 100K and 350K, which I know what everybody's thinking, like, fuck it. That's a lot of money now, let alone back then. But, I mean, for what you should take down for fixing the fucking World Series, I mean, come on. Now, the, the whole reason that they say that it can be argued is because they didn't, really pay the players what they said they were gonna and they were kind of you know giving them the runaround and getting them their money and so the players actually sort of started to try to win the the world series 
But eventually they would uh, they would send a goon, you know, what the mafia does best. They would send a goon to threaten uh, threaten the uh, White Sox pitcher at the time, and he would threaten him while he was sitting outside of his home with his young wife. And he said, you know, if you know what's good for you, you're gonna you're gonna lose that that you know series eight game, and you're gonna lose it quick. And I mean that's that is exactly what happened. Now, it's also around this time that. Rothstein's taking his gambling to a whole new level. He uh, he takes some of that you know freshly earned dough from becoming a millionaire from running casinos and uh, fixing you know horse tracks and whatnot, and sort of begins to loan to gamblers and like so I mean essentially becomes a loan shark's loan shark you guys and a book bookmaker's bookmaker you know what I mean like and uh, it would be because of this that he would uh, gain the nickname the big bankroll. Now. Eventually, Rothstein was summoned to testify in front of the grand jury about the 1919 World Series, but uh, only really all seven of the players took the L. I mean, they were banned from the game for life, and Rothstein, even though he had to testify, was never indicted. Now, if Rothstein would have known it was right around the corner, I don't even know if he would have even wasted his time trying to make a measly 350 k off the World Series. I mean, he probably still would have. Why wouldn't you want to fix the World Series? But in 1920, when uh, Prohibition begins to hit, Rothstein, I mean, he's actually credited with being the first one to really come up with like we need to organize getting booze into the cities, you know, and into the and into the country because people want to drink. I mean, as I've said before, anytime we talk about the Prohibition era, um, you know, 1920s, and you know, <laughs> we're in the 2020s, so you know, there you go, cross promotion. But nonetheless, I mean, like people, you make something taboo, and people are just gonna fucking flock to it. I mean, like crazy. I mean, look at look at what. You know, what, what happens with the opioid crisis or with the crack epidemic? Or, I mean, you know, you, you name it and pfft, that's that. You know, LSD in the 60s. Anytime that you're like, this is the worst thing on the planet. This is this is something you as a person cannot have. The government's telling you that it's in your best interest and we're deciding. Everybody's like, fuck you. And especially with alcohol. I mean, especially with alcohol. So during this time period, Rothstein sort of begins to cultivate, a, um, I mean, many gangsters, but ju- just a... A few more notable ones, you know, Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, uh, Meyer Lansky, uh, you know, Dutch Schultz, Vito Genovese, Legs Diamond. I mean, he really starts transforming them from having this real hoodlum, real, you know, gritty attitude mindset into trying to sort of fortify them into, I mean, I guess what you'd describe as CEOs of corporations, you know, businessmen. Not, not gangsters, businessmen. Now, not all took. Uh, Rothstein really took a liking to Luciano and Costello, as well as Lancey and Siegel, but he, uh, Siegel was always kind of a wild card, and he, he really did just take a shine to Luciano in particular, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me guys, and even at one point, uh, when Luciano was in his early days, and he was, uh, caught up dealing heroin, I needed a drink, sorry, he would, uh, <clears throat> he would do what you were never supposed to do in the mafia, and give up some of his cohorts, because he was facing a lot of time, he got caught with quite a bit of dope, now, this is long before, you know, the, the commission rules have been wrote, and this is kind of an odd time for the mob. So Luciano's just really sort of looked down on, and uh, you know, amongst his criminal allies. But what, you know, what Rothstein says they should do and what they did was, you know, Luciano bought 200 tickets to the Jack Dempsey fight, one of the biggest fights, you know, in history. Especially at that time, it was, I mean, forget about it. And uh, Rothstein sort of took him and tailored him up. Took him from a gritty street, you know, long black coats, and you got the, you know, fedoras and the, and he and he put him in more of like a, you know, what would you would see the CEO of Ford wearing, which is still a very very nice suit, 
but a nice tailored business suit, not real flaunty, not real, you know, nice solid colors, you know, your, your blues, your grays, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, and it worked, you guys, Luciano, I mean, he bounced, he pretty much bounced right back from it. And so as he's mentoring Luciano and all these guys, he, he's also sort of funding all of them. Like, um, he's really, he's really funding all of bootlegging at this period in time, him and a handful of other people, but he doesn't really care for an individual like Dutch Schultz. Now, Dutch Schultz was, I mean, I said it before, I'll say it again, he was one of the most cold-blooded sons of bitches to ever, you know, live this lifestyle. He just, he did, didn't seem, I never met the man, so I wouldn't actually fucking know, but just to me, everything I've read him, he it, he didn't seem like he feared or even really felt, it seemed like he was more of a almost textbook, a psychopath, you know, like a psychologist would have had a field day with Dutch Schultz. However, I mean, in crime despite the fact that, you know, Rossine didn't relish in the violence and he thought it was, you know, more animalistic and sort of barbaric and like beneath him in a sense, he, he did know that you do have to have it. You do have to have a strong arm. So he kept guys like Dutch Schultz and Legs Diamond and, you know, guys like that around because as, as psychotic and as kill crazy as they might've been, they, I mean, they also were bringing in a lot of fucking money. So he would shell money at, you know, them with their crews in Hell's Kitchen and, you know, the Irish areas, and then he would shell money towards Luciano and Costello and Lansky. I mean, you name it, guys, he was funding it. He was funding it so much that, you know, he, he sort of begins sort of losing out of money. Every time Arnold Rothstein seems to get, you know, that to that millionaire status, he, he put it all right back out in the streets, and it's almost like he was fucking broke overnight. You know, I mean, the man, <laughs> the man died, you know, in debt, I mean, which we'll get to down the road, but so... But at this period in time, Rothstein sets up shop. He sets up, you know, his headquarters at uh, Lindy's at Broadway. And he sort of uses his immense bankroll to back primarily Luciano, Costello, and Lansky. But, I mean, he, he does throw some money around to guys like, you know, Schultz and Legs Diamond and, you know, <coughs> just pretty much anybody who wanted to bootleg, you guys. Anybody who wanted to bootleg, anybody who wanted to gamble, anybody who wanted to do anything like that. And during this time period, he did settle many disputes uh, without violence. Gangsters would cut, you know, gangsters like Dutch Schultz and Legs Diamond would come to him saying, you know, we want to fucking take out so-and-so, yada, 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 yada. And, and he'd reason with them. And it was, and this is when he would be sort of dubbed, you know, the fixer or, or the brain. Um, they would also call him the man uptown at this point because, you know, you had to, have, you had to go to see him. Rothstein didn't come see you. You went and seen him. <clears throat> now, in 1921, uh, Rothstein makes another massive investment and uh, invest in a racehorse by the name of Sporting Blood, who won the 1921 Traverse Stakes um, under very questionable circumstances, I might add. Now, it's alleged that Rothstein was in cahoots with a man by the name of Sam Hildreth, who was the track's main trainer, and the pair managed to devise a ploy to where shortly before the race would happen, the odds on Sporting Blood would just kick, you know, kick up three to one. So Rothstein would bet a cool 150000 and, I mean, from that, he would take well over half a million. And, it, I mean, what? Talk about a fucking score, you guys. Like, no guns needed, no strong arm. No, there's one thing that can be said about Rothstein, um, is that he really knew the art of the deal. I mean, you, these motherfuckers out here want to talk about Trump knowing the art of the deal. Rothstein knew the art of the motherfucking deal, all right? And more so than maybe even somebody like a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs. If technology would have been on the forefront back then and not alcohol, that's the name we'd be talking about right now with the iPhone, not no Steve Jobs. It'd be, you know, Arnold Rothstein and his iPhone. But 
booze, you know, booze, gambling, vice, you know, I mean, we, our country was in, in a fever pitch at this point. So they worked with what they had. Now, by 1925, Rothstein is not only one of New York City's most powerful men, he's also one of the nation's most powerful men. And, in, and until uh, George Remus was, uh, you know, considered into the <clears throat> the equation, Rothstein was considered the biggest bootlegger in the nation. And as I said before, he was really sort of the, the driving force behind bootlegging. He's who really thought out, you know, how to get st distilleries built, how to smuggle in from Canada, how to smuggle in, you know, from uh, Mexico, how to smuggle anywhere else you could get alcohol. You know, Rothstein was sort of devising like when, where, how, and why to do it. You know, I mean, not why to do it. That was ridiculous. The why to do it was the money, but all the other ones. Now, in 1925, Rothstein is estimated to be worth around 10 million, which in today's money would be about 150, you guys. Now, that's a lot of coin. And even though that's all he was estimated to be worth at that time, the money that he had shelled out on the streets, you know, the money that he had put into bootlegging, into organized crime, into all the gambling rackets, probably quadrupled that. <clears throat> I mean, Rothstein was, uh, I guess the best way to describe an Arnold Rothstein would be he was a think tank. You know what I mean? He, he had the answers, period. Um... I'm sure it made him a little pompous or, or maybe, you know, unless you were somebody in his favor like Luciano or somebody like that, maybe even a little hard to deal with. But, uh, I mean, other than that, you could not deny the guy's logic. I mean, if he came at you with an idea, odds are it was a fucking solid idea, you know? <clears throat> and he didn't just have the gangster, you guys. I mean, it, Arnold Rothstein pretty much owned Tammany Hall at this period in time. And if you don't know what Tammany Hall is grab a history book. I, we don't, I don't got time to dwell into that one, but essentially it, it, it is it, you know, if you have your, if you had your hooks into Tammany hall back in those days, you know, it, it was on and popping for you. Um, gangs, New York does a really good bit about, you know, Martin Scorsese's movie gangs, New York with the Tammany hall and the, and the boss tweed, you know, and bill the butcher and all that. That's a really good depiction of, uh, what I'm talking about. If, uh, if you guys have seen that and if you haven't, you should privy it. It's a, it's a wonderful movie. One of my favorites, especially being Irish. Oh, happy belated St. Patrick's Day, by the way, everybody. I hope you guys are uh, dodging this media hype we're calling the coronavirus. I'm just kidding. Before everybody gets pissed at me, I don't fucking know if it's media hype or not. I just know that I'm not sick yet, and I, I don't know anybody who's got it yet. But I hope you're all staying safe, and I hope while you're quarantined, I can keep you occupied and entertained over here at Wise Guys Hideaway, which is all I've been trying to do since birth. All right, moving right along. Rossi, I mean, Rossi would have a good run, man. He would... He would really sort of put organized crime on the forefront and, you know, sort of on the front lines. And he would be the one who helped Luciano, you know, uh, brainstorm and then form, you know, the National Crime Syndicate. He never got a chance to live to see it through to where, you know, 1931, when Luciano forms the commission, uh, he, he wouldn't manage to live that long. But he really did give Luciano a gift. And Luciano said until his dying days that Arnold Rothstein pretty much... Uh, mentored him. It was he was he was his protege. You know, like he took him everywhere. He took him to meet politicians. He took him to meet, you know, big time attorneys. He took him to meet big time gang bosses. He took Luciano a lot of places. Cause <clears throat> another thing I probably should explain is during during this period of time before the commission set up and when Rothstein's doing his thing, the the Jew the Jewish community really has organized crime on lockdown. I mean, they are really they really are the first 
I suppose you'd say the Irish are the first to set up gangs in America. Uh, we can get into that down the road. But the Jewish are the first ones to really organize their criminals and sort of put them into like a, I mean, I mean, essentially a commission, but it didn't work quite the same way. There wasn't the same code of conduct. They didn't all answer to each other, but they, they really did have it on lockdown. Now he, he being Rothstein wasn't like traditional Jews or Sicilians or even traditional Irishmen to where the old schoolers, they didn't think you worked with anybody who wasn't of your kind. Old school Sicilians, you know, they only worked with Sicilians, old school, old school Jews. They only worked with Jews, you know, like, but Rossi didn't believe in that. He says, I mean, we all bleed red and, you know, money's always green. So why aren't we working together? We're fucking criminals, you know? And he sort of, you know, instilled that in Luciano. And Luciano would really bring it to the forefront when he would make the commission. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I mean, he really owed it, owed it all to Rothstein, guys. Like, it's, I mean, without without the shadow of a doubt. So even though Rothstein made immense amounts of money and pretty much was the brain power and driving force behind the bootleg era it couldn't stop him from just gambling himself into a hole he had so much money he was putting out on the streets he had so much money in, into bootlegging and gambling and horse races and and he was and he was always betting and he was always betting i i, I wouldn't essentially call him a degenerate gambler because uh, gambling played out for him a lot of times but i towards the end of his life it seemed like it was sort of getting to be there he would be at a card game for 36 hours straight leading up to, you know, the end of his life, which would be on November 4th, 1928 at the Park Central Hotel. Now, Rothstein and several other guys, I mean, they, they, they've been at it. They're, you know, they're playing high stakes poker for the last 36 hours. And he's eventually into what is the equivalent of nowadays $40 million to an Irish gangster by the name of uh, <coughs> George, George Hunt McManus. And... The, the game goes on and on. Eventually, Rothstein wa wants to call it, and McManus is not happy about this whole ordeal. And so he pulls out a pistol, allegedly, and pops one in Rothstein. Now, it's it's rumored that Rothstein said after he was shot, is, you know, is that all you got? But, I mean, that's all it would take because uh, Rothstein would die two days later on November 6, 1928, at the <coughs> Steel Vescent uh, Clinic Hospital in Manhattan. Now, during the two days where he's bleeding out and, you know, sort of dying and they're trying to save him in the hospital. He's obviously questioned by police. You know, obviously he staggered, he staggered out of the card game onto the streets, ran into just some everyday civilian and said, you know, I've just been shot. Please call an ambulance. And when the police get to him now, th this is one of the weirdest parts about Rothstein. Rothstein said all the way along his whole life that if need be, he would flip on somebody if it would have benefit him, but with nothing to lose and nothing to gain as well. He did oddly seem to somehow hold up to the code of Omerta, even though he didn't you know, necessarily have to practice it because that was a Sicilian thing. Because when the police asked him, you know, Mr. Rothstein, who, who shot you? Uh, Rothstein is alleged to have muttered, you know, my mother did it. And <clears throat> he would eventually pass away from his injuries. Um, George Hunt McManus's coat would be found at the card game and he would be arrested, but later released due to lack of evidence. Nobody's talking, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the late twenties and you know, murder happens all the time. Now, some think it's simply because of the gambling debt. Others believe that the madman Dutch Schultz actually set up to have Arnold Rothstein killed in retaliation for the murder of his friend, Jack Legs Diamond. Either way, Eventually, Rothstein would be buried at the Ridgewood Union Field Cemetery. And, uh, 
I mean, he would go, but he would go down as a legend, you guys. He would, he would not only go down as a legend to guys like me, but he went down to a legend for other legends, you know, guys like Luciano and Genovese and all that. They, they never stopped telling the tale of Rothstein and, you know, what he did, you know, for organized crime. And that was the other funny part about whether or not he actually fixed the 1919 World Series. It didn't matter by then because to those young aspiring, you know, gangsters that he made millionaires and, you know, essentially the CEOs of their own company and heads of their families, uh, they never told the story like he didn't. And I mean, his legacy just goes on and on. And one of the funniest parts about his death is Rothstein was such a gambler that he would, he would gamble on who was going to win the presidency on elections. Now he had bet that Herbert Hoover would win, would win this particular election. And had he had just, you know, sort of kind of wrote out on that, he had so much down on that, believe it or not, that it would have squared up his gambling debt if he could have just lived to collect. But the truth is stranger than fiction, my friends. Thanks again for joining me over here at Wise Guys Hideaway. I really appreciate all you beautiful sons of bitches. I'm out of here. Hey, yo, is this thing on? Hello, is your shit working? Yo, this is your fucking boy. Ian Barr, just wanted to give a big fucking shout out, let you know I've been listening to this shit since day one, son, huge fucking fan, tattoo wise guys hideaway on my fucking neck, play this shit at my fucking funeral, you understand me, you feeling what the fuck I'm saying, hey ma, shut the fuck up, I'm on the phone, you hear me, hey, god damn, let man get some fucking privacy, oh, by the way, this your boy Tony the fucking Tiger Tapadaglio from the mean streets of Emmett, Michigan, boy, coming to you live. Listen, you need to do a fucking scoop, one of these fucking shindig episodes on the street legend, Louis Bagadonas Galante, all right? We've been running this shit for a goddamn hot minute. Holler at your fucking boy! Hey, I'll be back. I've been listening to you every fucking day. I gotta go pick up a fucking bag. I'll be back in a little bit. Hey, let's fucking roll!